From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. A disturbing trend over the past few years has been the rise of anti-Semitism. The Anti-Defamation League, which tracks anti-Semitic incidents, says 2021 was the worst year in decades, and that 2022 will look similar once the numbers are tabulated. We're in a five-year upswing overall. And that's about as much airtime as I want to give these anti-Jewish acts of hate. We're not going to be talking about Kanye West or about who President Donald Trump has had dinner with recently. Instead, I'm thrilled to be sharing this conversation I recently had with Dr. Philip Cunningham and Dr. Adam Gregerman, two scholars who have devoted their careers to building bridges between Jews and Catholics. Phil and Adam lead the Institute for Jewish-Catholic Relations at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. The institute was founded in 1967 in response to the Second Vatican Council. Phil is Catholic and Adam is Jewish, and their shared leadership models the type of engagement the institute is all about, and I think you'll see that sort of collaboration on display throughout this episode. I asked Phil and Adam for a brief historical overview of the relationship between Catholics and Jews, and why the promulgation of the Vatican II document Nostra Aetate was such an important turning point. I also asked them about what work they're doing today and how we can build relationships across religious divides without erasing each faith's uniqueness. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm so grateful for their scholarship and their witness, especially in these times. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Phil Cunningham and Adam Gregerman, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, how are you doing today? Good. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks for the invitation to join you. No, no, uh, really excited to to have you on. Uh, maybe we could just start telling us a little bit about yourselves. Maybe, Adam, we can, can start with you. Um, just a little bit about your, your background and, and what you focus on. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a professor of Jewish studies at a, at a Catholic university, at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and have long had a focus on Jewish-Christian relations, have studied um, antiquity, first few centuries of, of the common era of AD, and uh, as time went on, increasingly the contemporary relationship between Jews and Christians, fortunate to be able to co-direct an institute uh, devoted to the study of Jewish-Catholic relations uh, with my friend and colleague Phil, who's gonna be here for this discussion as well, and um, uh, get to teach classes in a variety of topics, uh, most in undergraduates. And uh, fortunately, I also get to do some team teaching. So Phil and I, for topics that are sort of inherently dialogical and represent multiple religious traditions, uh, we regularly teach classes in theology and history um, that look at the, the relationship between these two religions, um, in particular the way in which there have been some amazing improvements in that relationship over time. Great. Well, thank you so much. And, and Phil, how about yourself? Yeah, so uh, th uh, I'm Phil Cunningham. Uh, uh, as Adam said, um, <laughs> we, we co-direct the Institute for Jewish-Catholic Relations of St. Joseph's University. And um, my background is uh, in terms of biblical studies and religious education. So uh, with a very strong focus on uh, Catholic-Jewish relations, so I guess I would describe myself in terms of my academic work as a, as a biblical theologian with that particular 
uh, focus and concern developing Catholic theologies of its relationship with the Jews and, and Judaism. Um, it's wonderful that the structure that we have at St. Joe's enables uh, Adam and I to interact constantly, which really is what is necessary in the field of Jewish Christian dialogue, that, that sustained encounter now for, for us for 10 years um, is, uh, is absolutely critical. So uh, it, it's a real blessing to, uh, to be in this uh, situation at St. Joe's. Terrific. And maybe we could just ask one question about language at the start here. So I, I've done a little bit of study in these areas, and I, I noticed your institute is titled the Institute for Jewish Catholic Relations. And so often when you are, there are things that are out there, like in the media about Jews and Christians, or like you hear like the phrase Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Catholic values, dialogue, whatever, but then I kind of, at least a little bit, I've learned, try to stay away from that phrasing. And I've noticed the two of you haven't used it and it's not in the title. So Adam, is there, what, just so for folks who might, again, have heard that or, or use it, why do we generally kind of avoid the Judeo-Christian mm -hmm. uh, language? Yeah, so it's a good question because that phrase was especially prominent, I think, maybe from the middle to the late 20th, late 20th century, maybe kind of waned in its, its um in its usage and, and itself, the terms sort of Judeo-Christian or variants on that tend to be um, making a sort of claim about the closeness of the traditions, particularly in their American uh, setting. I think it's quite different from as we use it in um, historical settings, academic settings, and, and more broadly, think more in terms of Jewish slash Christian or, or Jewish slash Catholic to sort of encompass many centuries of, of interaction relations um, and aren't really making um, a sort of normative claim in the way that Judeo-Christian was kind of intending to originally do. Um, it's problematic for a variety of reasons. Of course, it can be exclusivistic in a society that's more inclusive, more diverse. Um, one thing I do want to note is that uh, Phil, who is explicitly in the Catholic tradition, and we both work in a Catholic university, are often interested in Catholic writings, uh, theology, um, but that's not um, that's not to to say that the trends beyond the Catholic world in in Christianity, whether it be in Protestantism, mainline Protestantism, evangelicalism, uh, increasingly uh, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, the religious traditions of of uh, beyond Protestant and Catholic, really, um, those are certainly. Um, uh, areas that we focus on as well. And so while in some sense our home is in the Catholic world, um, there's an enormous amount of crossover. And so they're distinctives of the Catholic tradition, but there's also a lot of relevance to what's happening in Jewish-Christian relations broadly to, to all these different um, uh, denominations of a sort. And so um, it's a home, uh, but it's not Jewish-Catholic relations, a home, but it's not meant to be exclusive. Sure. I think it is safe to say, though, that for the, like the, um, vast majority of the history of the Catholic Church to have an institute like yours with two of you working together as co-directors to be having this conversation um, it just wouldn't have happened it might have surprised people say a thousand years ago or even much more recently than that yeah, and I, I know and we were 70 years ago yeah I know 
that before we started recording is that, you know, you could have, I'm sure you have taught whole courses kind of on the history of relationships between Jews and Christians over 2000 years. I, I would though, like if we can do any like kind of kernel of historical context for our listeners, just so we can get a sense of kind of where we are today. Um, so are you able, uh, maybe Phil, could you start us like looking back and maybe the two of you can collaborate a little on if you're going back, can we do that kind of uh, 30,000 foot view and then maybe spend some more time on the, the 20th century and some developments, but it, it hasn't been great for a lot of the history. Uh, well, that's true. Um, I mean, the easiest way f- that I have found to summarize the history is to say that beginning in the patristic period, which would be roughly, you know, 100 to 600 um, CE or AD, um, the idea got embedded in Christian thought that Jews were under a divine curse for rejecting Christ. It might have taken a more specific form. It did in, as, you know, those who killed Jesus, those responsible, but it was in this collective sense. And with, and, and there's reasons why that got embedded and why it arose in the first place that are largely social um, in their, in their origins. But, um, but once once the Christian religious imagination, if I can put it that way, has this notion that Judaism is inherently opposed to Christianity, that God has removed God's favor from the Jewish people, that they're going to wander the earth forever homeless um, and, and without a homeland. Uh, once that idea is sort of in the air, then every text that is read is read through that lens. So the New Testament would be read with that, you know, kind of seeing and in some cases maybe um, projecting onto the New Testament text this idea. And the shocking thing, and here's where I'll leap over uh, 18 centuries in one fell swoop, um, so temporal whiplash ahead, um, the, the, the shocking thing is that that premise was not seriously critiqued until after the Holocaust, after the Shoah. Uh, and a, a very vivid um, illustration of, of this point is that during the rise of Nazism uh, in Germany in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, there were Catholics and Protestant theologians who were mightily alarmed by the appeal that Nazi racist anti-Semitism had for too many Christians and they sought to critique it, but they they found their efforts stymied because they did not reconsider this premise that God was angry with the Jews, and maybe they're this is a this what's happening to them with the rise of Nazism and other uh, persecutions is, is simply God's wrath being worked out. So it it was a theological straitjacket, and um, it was it was not. Uh, in the Catholic community, it was, of course, the Second Vatican Council that explicitly condemned the notion that um, that one could read the scriptures and come with the conclusion that that Jews are accursed in any way. So that was the the fulcrum. That was the turning point. That's where things changed um, historically. Hmm. Before we get into that, Adam, any other uh, pieces from that? history you'd want to make sure uh, mm-hmm. we get we get in here yeah so i mean i i think the period of separation contrary to what i think most people think is 
a much murkier, more ambiguous, more winding path between um, what originally is in, in, in the first century in the time of Jesus and the, the few decades after is it is an entirely internal Jewish uh, trend, internal Jewish development. And the, um, the sort of full-fledged emergence of an independent religious tradition called Christianity that's marked by its Gentile status, its Gentile dem demographic status, and that defines itself against Judaism takes a while and happens at different times in different places. Um, it has a lot to do with efforts at self-definition. Um, during those first few centuries, Christians have no political power. And so this polemic is, um, this sort of anti-Jewish polemic is, 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 um, uh, has no has no practical application. Um, it in many ways reflects a kind of sectarian mindset of a group that feels um, on the fringe and battled. And, and it's really only in the fourth century with the emergence of a Christian empire that these ideas start to have sort of real world consequences. Um, the experience of Jews living under Christian rule um, varies dramatically. It is by no means a, a sort of unending um uh, unending, you know, sort of trauma. Um, things change over time and place, um, as you would expect. Um, the uh, to, to to jump as, as Phil did, to, to jump to the to the twentieth century and the Holocaust. Even that, even the connection between Nazi anti Judy uh, anti Semitism as a kind of pseudo scientific, largely secular form of, of of hatred and its relationship to what came before in Christian theological anti-Judaism. That's a complicated one, especially as we increasingly sort of realize that those terms aren't as pure as they sound. And so um, even some of the pseudoscientific uh, uh, forms of opposition to Jews um, can be found in Christian thought. And so it's, it's a very um, complicated history. It's really only, as Phil said, in the, in the last uh three quarters of a century, roughly, going back to the 1960s, especially that there's a dramatic change. The only thing I would add as well is that there's far less interest among Jews and Christianity in all of those centuries. Um, for the most part, Jews ignored Christian, uh, the emergence of Christianity, because after a relatively short time, it's primarily Gentile, non-Jewish. And, um, and so there's in some ways kind of an imbalance, the amount of attention that traditions give each other, Jews or Christians, as people give each other. Um, and one of the things that happens in a positive sense in the in the, in the modern period is a, uh, is a is a change in that relationship to the point that it's not just you know no hatred but, but rather developing something positive sure and yeah that's always you know a question is okay i can see why christians who are feeling bad about this history would want to have some kind of reconciliation right might use that word reconciliation presupposes like some positive relationship that had been broken and so there's not always another party is like all that excited to reconcile or to come together. Like, why would we bother? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but it sounds, so as you're saying it, maybe there, there has been even more recently, maybe since that middle 20th century, an engagement kind of from both, yeah. both traditions. And I, I mean, I would add, it's, it's, you know, I'll add this just as an outsider to the Christian tradition, but um, I mean, I think the questions that get raised in the last, again, 50, 75 years are not just about feeling bad. I mean, in many ways, of course, the history is, 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 is horrifying and chastening, and it's obviously a lot to deal with. But, um, but, um, but as, a, as, a, as, someone, as someone who's, who's not a Christian, but is involved closely with friends who are 
you know, colleagues who are Christian, um, the issues that get raised in Jewish-Christian relations um, aren't simply about sort of getting past negative stuff about Jews, but raise really profound issues about sort of who's Jesus? What was Paul having to say? Well, <clears throat> what was Paul trying to say? And, and so there's a much deeper, um, a sort of much deeper rethinking that is, you know, prompted undeniably by the by the shock of the Holocaust on for 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 Christians of goodwill, but but it's um, but the 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 implications go go deeper, and in many ways, I think most Christians would agree. And I feel Phil should weigh in, but I think in many ways those are good things. I mean, those yeah, if I could, if, questions that you know. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll piggyback on that and and make the kind of um, obvious observation, but it has deep implications, namely that. Um, Christianity um, has the scriptures of ancient Israel as part of its biblical canon, um, traditionally called the Old Testament. And um, that means that Christian identity is somehow rooted in the history of, of, of a particular people um, and a particular people that still is thriving and alive religiously and spiritually, because as John Paul II put it, um, their covenantal life with God goes on and, and has never ended, despite Christian feelings to the contrary for so many centuries. Uh, that, as Adam touched on, uh, I think a, an area of great interest that our institute is co-sponsoring some international research on is, is what the significance of the Jewishness of Jesus is for both Christians and Jews. Um, the U.S. bishops in 1975, in a, in a statement th that they uh, released, made the observation that over history there has been a tendency in Christianity to de-Judaize Jesus. Um, that, that's the, the verb that they use. And it's really quite true that, it, you know, we, ever, ever since Vatican II, every Catholic document that's relevant to this relationship has pointed out that Jesus was a Jew, that his mother is a Jew, that the first apostles were Jews. But if if Christian congregations, if the Catholic community does not, if there's no content to what the word Jew means, then simply saying Jesus was a Jew is a rather meaningless and insignificant statement. But it's actually very profound. And um, that's one of the things our Institute, in collaboration with others, is working on is to explore the depths of what that means. And I, I won't speak for the Jewish community, uh, and Adam certainly can say more than I about this, but but it's also a question for Jews. Like, what does it mean to say that Christians are claiming that this first century Jew is somehow their Lord or their, or is the, is the, uh, the origination of their religious tradition? Um, and that, that we are now in a climate where both communities can probe these questions in ways that were impossible when we were in a hostile relationship to each other. Hmm. Sure. I mean, I even think about these coming out of the kind of Christmas Advent Christmas liturgies and some of the, you know, the readings Christmas Eve from Isaiah, you know, there will be this child will be born, you know, we'll name him wonder counselor. And so there's this kind of continuity for Christians. Like, Oh, look, this, we're seeing this, Christ kind of prefigured in Hebrew scripture. And so just kind of make, draw that line. Uh, even, you know, Mary and the Magnificat is clear, is quoting from scripture, Jesus all the time, announcing his, uh, his public ministry, quoting from scripture, clearly deeply 
Jewish, and then it can make, oh, so for us then, you could see this line is there, it's continuity, and we believe in the same God. But even a claim like that, I imagine, is well, another if I could know, nuance, big question. If we I could nuance that a little bit, believe in the same God. remember that all of the texts that we're reading, um, the ones you cited just now at least, are all written by Jews, who are who are Jews who have become convinced that the one that was crucified has been raised to transcendent life, which is a rather unexpected development. And so uh, they go back and reread their own scriptures in the light of this experience and bring interpretations to those texts that no one would have ever imagined unless they were sort of reading, reading let me start that over again, unless they were actually reading those texts through Christ Jesus lenses. Um, and one of the great um, um, fruits of the Catholic post-Noster Aetate tradition is the recognition. Pope Benedict, whose funeral was today, uh, was very strong on the fact that there is a legitimate, spiritually enriching modern Jewish way of reading the Hebrew scriptures that we can learn from, we Catholics. And and maybe in dialogue together, which Adam and I are doing all the time, we can read the text from our different traditions of interpretation and learn a lot more than we would have in isolation. Yeah. And that's true for Jews. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you don't treat every text as an opportunity for a clash, um, mm. historically as it's been, um, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. Um, Jews, Jews read those texts, and we have traditions about how they're to be interpreted. And in some ways, they're actually in response to, if not dialogue with Christian interpretations. And so, you know, if you if one can put aside um, the tendency to have a kind of zero-sum um, perspective, because um, it's rarely the case that... that um, in many of these discussions, there's there's simply one right answer. I mean, we often look, for example, at biblical texts and how they're read. Um, and, and I don't want to sort of fall to sort of you know this relativism that you know none of it matters. Rather, that there's sort of um, you know sort of multiple approaches with integrity and truth and value. And um, it feels shocking if you know about the history, but at the same time, it's not surprising because of how much over overlap there is. Um, and so I learned, I learned greatly from, from those discussions. Um, you know, if anything, the more Jesus looks like a Jew, um, it's uh, challenging for Christians, but it's also challenging for Jews. And so that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Before we kind of get any further, we could go down so many different, I have so many questions and pathways I'm interested in. We could, again, do a whole series of sure. those. Maybe we will. But uh, for now, I, we, you did, Phil, you mentioned Nostra Etate. That is uh, something, I, just in case our listeners aren't that familiar with, we think we should probably pause and, and talk about now we, we've gotten to this point. So maybe you could give us a similar 30,000-foot summary uh, of, of what Nostra Etate is and, and what it did. So Nostra Etate was one of the 16 documents issued by the Second Vatican Council. It was uh, promulgated by Pope Paul VI, now St. Paul VI, um, uh, on October the 28th, 1965. And it, uh, the, the subtitle, I guess, or the, the, the fuller title is uh, a declaration on the relationship of the church to non-Christian religions. Um, uh, it began partially as a result of a meeting that the French Jewish historian Jules Isaac had with uh, St. John the 23rd uh, on June the 13th, 1960. Uh, 
Uh, he was a historian and uh, had studied what he called the Christian teaching of contempt for Jews, had, a, had this 20 or 30 minute audience with the Pope and, and requested that the council that was in preparation address the topic of church teaching on Jews. So Nostra Aetate originated as, in fact, its initial t draft title was On the Jews. Um, and um, it went through many iterations. That's a whole long story in and of itself of its travails uh, in the council and its development. But uh, at the end of the day, what it, it was voted upon overwhelmingly uh, by the, the bishops, I mean, in the range of 90 some odd percent uh, in favor. And um, it, it, besides saying, as, as we had mentioned earlier, besides saying the Jews should not be uh, thought of as accursed by God as if this followed from Holy Scripture, uh, it also uh, uh, spoke of Jews in the present tense, citing uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, that uh, to Jews belong the covenants and the blessings and the, and the promises, um, strongly implying, if not being so quite explicit, that Jews today remain the people of God and uh, are in a living relationship with God, something that John Paul II would expand on and make more explicit when he became Pope. Um, so it really represents uh, an enormous and really the first official conciliar level Catholic doctrinal statement about the relationship to Jews, um, as well as other religions. But um, personally, I think Adam would agree that for the two of us, the sentence in Nostra Aetate that says that mutual understanding and enrichment can best be achieved by theological, by joint studies and by friendly conversations um, that was the sentence that caused the Jesuits at St. Joseph's University in 1960, like the very next month, practically after Nostra Aetate was promulgated, to make plans with the local American Jewish Committee and the National American Jewish Committee to form an, an, an institute um, to, uh, to have the very kinds of conversations that the council mandated. And, um, and here we are today almost 60 years later, um, certainly uh, expanding and developing in ways that I think those pioneers in the 1960s would never have imagined. Hmm. Adam, now, so the Catholic Church issues this document. What is the, there, so there's not a Jewish response the same way you could have this official magisterial Catholic response because Judaism isn't set up quite like Catholicism, not really this kind of magisterium with like a, a single kind of person who can make these proclamations. So could you tell us a little bit about the the kind of responses and even your own yeah. response to kind of, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that Nostra Tate rightfully gets um, the most attention because it, it's, it's the first step, but it's followed up by a series of other documents, both by the the Vatican and by national bishop commission, national uh, commissions of bishops. The American bishops, for example, released their own documents that push the ideas of Nostra Aetate in some cases quite dramatically forward. And so, the, and, and I mention this because the Jewish response is not limited simply to Nostra Aetate, but really to speak about it in terms of ongoing development. Nostra Aetate. Um, without spending too much time on it, um, 
It deals with an issue, the deicide charge, the accusation that, that all Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus into the future. Um, it deals with that and got a lot of attention for that. Um, that strikes most people, I think, as you know, certainly on the other side of Nostratate, shockingly not so much before, as completely ridiculous. That is this notion of inherited guilt. This no, you know, so, so there's just so much of that. So that, that idea, which was prominent in Nostratate, sort of once it's addressed, just simply disappears, at least from, from, from Western Protestant Catholic teaching, for the most part, um, where it would have been much more common. And the ideas that get presented there are built upon over time and... I think it's the Jewish response originally in Nostratate. It was actually kind of mixed. Um, when you read it now, it's it's a little it's it, it sounds a little old, um, or or it, it it is it does not have the um, the the sort of vibe that you see in a much more positive sense of the uh, subsequent documents. And, and so Nostratate was complicated, and there's no. Uh, Jewish authority, though, though the response to that document was kind of mixed, um, especially around the issue of conversion, which does not get endorsed, sort of vaguely looking forward to something in the future, but it's not really clear what that is. And I, I, I think most importantly, it does not endorse efforts at conversion of Jews. Um, there, I think fairly one could say, despite there not being an organizational response from you know the Jewish Vatican, um, there is certainly a mainstream response, mainstream response, which is apparent both, I think, in in Jewish organizational life, but also in um, sort of Jewish intellectual life, academic teaching, etc. Um, to, I guess, I would say, sort of almost almost be pleasantly surprised at, at, at just how good Nostratate turned out to be. And this was apparent when the 50th anniversary was commemorated in 2015, and you know, to sort of oversimplify, you know. Most, you know, most Jews can't say enough good stuff about it. Um, and, and that's because it, it really marks a change, even if itself leaves certain things unfinished. Um, and, and so I think to look at the pattern over time, there has been um, Jewish interest, Jewish support, Jewish dialogue, contributions to these documents. Um, and um, in the last few decades, uh, statements by Jewish groups, uh, Jewish scholars um, that, for the most part, continue this trajectory on the Jewish side, um, sort of putting aside some of the content, which is itself a very interesting topic. There is a sense of sort of two groups moving in the same direction, even if one can't speak about um, a formal um, magisterium of any kind. If I could hmm. jump on that, Phil, you, one quick point yeah. is... Um, um, Nostra Aetate really took off in the United States. And that's not surprising because large populations of Catholics and Jews live together in our major cities, um, particularly in the 1960s and, and, and before. Um, we had worked together. I say we as if I was alive. But anyway, we had worked together at the beginning of the 20th century on you know the union movement and, and trying to have child labor laws and... Uh, in the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, the, the, there was a lot of, of um, collaboration on, on pressing social issues that brought Catholics and Jews together, even though as immigrants, they were in competition and there was a lot of hostility between the two groups. But, but that, you know, in a, in a pluralistic democracy, 
where you have the largest population of diaspora Jews in the world living literally next door to large Catholic communities. Um, you know, Americans took off and ran with Nostra Aetate's invitation to a new relationship. Uh, and I think that, by the way, even to the present day, gives, uh, gives the church in the United States, the Catholic Church in the United States, a special responsibility to continue to develop the relationship because, because of this blessed situation that we're in, which is not replicable hardly anywhere else in the world. Um, and um, so that's, that's another element of the, develop, of the process that has unfolded post-council. Post and if I could just mention, there are centers now devoted to the study of these topics like ours. We're at a Catholic university and, and are fortunate to be sort of staffed by two full-time faculty members. But there are other centers, many of them at Catholic universities, secular universities, um, actually secular. I'm not sure about secular. but, but well, There's um, certainly a lot more but, Jewish but, but studies it, departments know, at secular universities than there were. Uh, yeah. So. And at Christian universities. Sure. Um, and so you've got... Um, a lot of institutional support um, on the Jewish side from organizations, um, uh, rabbinical associations, um, but there's um, a kind of robust, there's a kind of robust um, uh, support for this at a, at a number of different levels. Phil, you, you had mentioned that in the work you're doing now, maybe pushing things forward, tackling issues, working together on things that the Jesuits and, and other, the partners who founded the Institute in the sixties would, wouldn't have dreamed of. I'm curious to now we can maybe talk a little bit about what are some of those things that the two of you are, are focused on now? What are some of those, the big questions you're, you're wrestling with? Yeah. What, what are the frontiers in kind of Jewish Catholic uh, relationships today? Well, um, let me, let me say first that when, uh, Nostratate, which, by the way, the Latin words mean in our time, uh, was issued in 65. We now, living decades later, and certainly our undergraduate students, um, don't realize that, that Jews and Catholics had not really talked a lot about religious matters. We didn't even have a vocabulary to do that. Um, and one of the first things, you know, in 1967, when our institute was founded, um, we, we had to learn how to talk to one another. We had to learn, for example, that when Christians use the word Messiah, we mean something quite different than what Jews mean by the word Messiah. Or when, when Christians are, um, uh, that the word salvation is a high priority in the, in the Christian lexicon, it isn't so much in the Jewish community. And we had to learn both that and then why that is the case. And so, um, so jump ahead now to the present. Um, there's, I mean, we could talk for hours about, about the possible things to talk about. I'll mention one, uh, well, maybe two. Uh, and, and first is that um, I think we are learning that besides the fact that we had caricatures of each other for so long that inhibited true understanding, we're also learning that the way we use certain key words as, as, as a Catholic, as a Christian, like Messiah, like salvation, um, grow out of a whole master narrative that defines and explains who Christians understand themselves to be. 
and it's a story that would begin with creation and a certain understanding of events in the Garden of Eden as Genesis narrates them, goes through history and sees Israel as largely preparatory for the coming of a savior who, who, um, who is the incarnate word of God, who suffers, dies, and all of this is loaded into unconsciously, unless you're a theologian that studies these things, um, uh, into the very words we use. So that when, for example, we talk about Messiah, we really mean Christ, and Christ means something you know, Jews wouldn't use that word and wouldn't use it the way we do, certainly. Whereas there's also a Jewish master narrative that that their emphasis on the commandments or on Torah or on study um, are informed by the Jewish master narrative. So one of the fascinating things to discuss as it's becoming clearer that our respective master narratives to varying degrees are constructed upon caricatures of the other religious tradition, um, do we need, you know, I'll personalize it. When I'm talking to Adam about a specific text that I know in our tradition has been read a certain way that tends to have anti-Jewish potentialities there, does that challenge me to have to rethink the master narrative in some way? And what are the limits of that? And and how does that work? And, you know, uh, with the necessary adjustments on the other side of the fence, um, you know, Jews for for a long time tended to look upon non-Jews in this very generic sort of a way without attention to the religious particularities that, that Gentiles, particularly Christians claim. So, so this is one of the exciting things that literally has never been possible in the history of Christianity and Judaism, you know, living together on the same planet. Um, uh, so there, there's an example of, of, with lots of, tentacles that reach out in various directions. That's an example of something that that now we we've we've learned sufficiently how to talk together. We have learned some of the pitfalls, some of the misconceptions that we have. And now I think we're really, you know, primed, as I say, maybe in a particularly special way in the United States to to really delve into these kinds of novel questions. Sure. Adam, how about for you? Yeah. Um, so to, to, to sort of piggyback on something Phil said, to highlight a, a word, um, covenant, the idea of a relationship with God, the sense of that relationship being special, unique, exclusive, or inclusive, what kind of room can be made for, for, for the other. Um, Phil talked about the perception of Christians as a kind of generic other, at least traditionally in Christianity, in Judaism. Um, the challenge to that idea, what does it mean for Jews to see Christians as, in some sense, um, a kind of third group, not um, a generic other, but but a, um, a closer uh, other. Um, and, and the topic of covenant has a lot of relevance to the um, uh, to, to sort of Christian contemporary uh, theology as well. Um, and this may very clear in a in a very significant 2015 statement uh, by the Commission for Religious Relations with the Jews. The, the Vatican has a has an important document on Jewish-Christian uh, relations theology in which in which covenant plays a large role um, and how to sort of make room for for another. Um, the other issue I would mention just briefly has to do with um, theologies of the of, uh, of Israel, land of Israel, state of Israel. Um, this is largely undeveloped. Um, 
by the uh, by the Catholic theological sort of world, certainly in official Catholic teachings, very little there. Um, likewise, a lot of attention. Uh, well, let me actually. Perhaps the opposite in the sense that evangelicals, Protestants have given this a lot of attention, but, but likewise haven't gone very deep either. And so, so it's sort of like the opposite to what Catholics have largely been doing, but neither one of them taking it particularly far because the implications of um, that, uh, the implications of affirming some sort of Jewish theological connection to that place whose roots go back to a shared Bible uh, are, are, are really complex politically, theologically, historically as well. That's something that um, uh, deserves to get more attention and, and, is, and is starting to. So you, you have, again, any number of these topics and issues that you can, you can write on, teach on, give lectures on, engage other scholars around. And I'm curious for you both, like, how do you think of, how do you describe the kind of the mission of the Institute, of this work, you, know, I, you hear, again, a lot, you hear the word dialogue, and I think dialogue is certainly important, that talking across boundaries, but I, I wonder if that's not deep enough or if you think of as as dialogue as the, the kind of main part of the mission. So just curious, kind of as you engage these questions and can have these conversations that are still, again, unfolding, um, yeah, how do you how do you think of your, your mission personally, institutionally? So maybe, Phil, I could start with you. It's a it's a it's a key question, um, and I dare say it's a question that um, that requires the participants in this new relationship to reflect on and um, and articulate sort of the future agenda or the mission ahead, uh, almost in a personal way. And I would say. Uh, to sum up a lot of stuff in a very short sentence, I would say that our that 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 the in, the mission of our institute, as it's stated, is to promote uh, knowledge and increase understanding between Jews and Catholics. That's the the way the mission was articulated back in 1967. But I think because of some of the intervening developments that we were just talking about. I, I think one way of expressing the future vision for our work is to say we want to enable Christians, or specifically Catholics and Jews, and there's a reason for that specificity, but for Catholics and Jews to learn more about God and their own relationship with God by learning together. And by, you know, I'm affected personally by the, the Jewish emphasis on study and studying Torah in, in, with, with a study partner. And years ago, a rabbi friend of mine mentioned something that's always stuck with me and, and grown further, and that is one way of looking at the Jewish-Catholic relationship is to understand it as they are study partners. They, and it's not just studying texts, which is the Jewish focus. It's also studying how we live and how how our ethics and morals and our traditions shape our lives and give meaning to, to the issues in the world that we find important and how to address them. Um, th 
in the in the process, you know, I've been blessed personally, not only teaching with Adam, but with many uh, other Jewish colleagues over the years. And and every so often, either in formal teaching or in preparing for classes or in uh, in just sort of hanging out and schmoozing over a particular t article that somebody has written, something happens or is said, or I might be at a Jewish religious service, and and feel the presence of the holy. Um, that that there's a brush with the transcendent, and I think if that is under and others have reported the same experience that are involved in interreligious activities, um, I think that is kind of where we're moving. And um, I think Pope Francis has had that kind of experience in his dialogues with rabbinic friends in Argentina, particularly Rabbi Abraham Skorka. Um, once you detect holiness in the other tradition. You can't look at them the same way ever again, nor do you look at yourself the same way ever again. And that's that I think is the best I can haltingly say at this point about about what our mission is. I think our mission is to make those kinds of experiences possible for as many Catholics and Jews as we can. I'll just add briefly, and this is really from an entirely different angle. Phil offered a very, you know profound and thoughtful answer. I would just note that we speak to a lot of different um, groups, demographics. We work with um, scholars in a series of conferences we run over the years, uh, students in class and out, uh, community members, clergy. Um, we've been very lucky. The university has, um, you know, how do I say, sort of, sort of largely let us kind of do what we want and, and uh, be in uh, in contact uh, with those who uh, would benefit from this, we we interact with folks folks from uh, other centers, other scholars around the, the country, and, and institutes, high school group. And, and so it's um, the high school high school students. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty diverse group of um, uh, uh, you know it reflects kind of the educational mission of of being at a university um, and the academic side of sort of trying to push forward, particularly with folks who are, um, you know, the fellow, you know, scholars in this field. Um, we've, we've really tried to be a place that cultivates that. Uh, St. Joseph's, I think, quite proud that, that, that we've been able to to bring people together now every, every few years. And, and in some cases, we've had ongoing programs as we do now that really try to explore topics that are, are really important and have not gotten much attention or are sort of just getting attention. I do want to to ask you about this. You know, a hot topic that's been you know in the news a lot is is campus polarization within the context of larger polarization in the United States. This feeling that we can't people on different sides of questions can't talk to each other, can't build understanding. Um, that even maybe listening to someone who you don't agree with is a way of validating them in in a way that's dangerous. Uh, and then then there's responses. No, there's really not this you know, the whole, like the sense of uh, the censorship, censorship on campus isn't really happening. So there's a lot about this. You could like open up a, a news website pretty much any week and see another article about some university debate or some speaker uninvited or, or the, our failure to talk to each other, right? And politically, so, uh, you guys have been doing this a long time, the Institute a long time, showing kind of living that people on different sides can, can talk. 
to each other about things and not just talk, but grow and challenge each other and, and change. And I'm just wondering, are there th- experiences you think from the Institute like or personally in your own lives working there that you think could be applied or uh, people from in other contexts could see about how do you go about this, like this work of building understanding across these boundaries, which seems to be such a challenge in other contexts today? I mean, I don't think, I mean, to, to maybe perhaps being lucky, we don't touch some of the issues that are um, regularly most divisive. I might say we do a little bit with Israel and Palestine, but primarily theology and religion. Um, you know, if, if anything, we've been kind of lucky to not be sort of caught up in some of those issues. And I do think um, when there's experiences where things are, are tense or disagreement. Um, you know, we're at, we're at a university and that isn't a guarantee of, you know, everything, but, but, but we've been able to say, for example, bring people together with diverse points of view for study together and to really emphasize the need for hearing the other. Um, uh, you know, again, that, that kind of reflects our focus, which is, you know, theological, academic, religious, but also relevant to, to sort of broader society. Um, and I, I think, um, some of it is that we've focused on topics that are that are not as neuralgic. Um, I also would say, I guess, maybe we're lucky about this as well. Um, these aren't fields in which people are trying to sort of score points um, in the same way that, for example, other campus debates have, have played out or, or sort of broader cultural conflicts. Um, most people who are involved in interreligious relations, religious studies, uh, again, not in the sort of most popular sense where there's a lot of conflict, but um, generally adopt a sort of attitude of, of, of goodwill. And um, I'm not sure how easy that is to, to scale up to other settings, but I would say that we've been um, quite fortunate to, to not be caught up in a lot of those tensions we hear about um, in the press, which I'm not sure how reflective that is broadly. But, um, but do get attention. Yeah, I, let me take Adam's comment and, and combine it with something you asked earlier, Mike, which was uh, you were kind of uh, asking about like, what is dialogue? And, and is dialogue really the best word to talk about what we do and that sort of thing? Um, I think the fact that we are on a Catholic university campus is very significant because there's a certain ethos that is encouraged of respect. It's not, it's not a fail safe. You know, there's, there, there are conflicts. There are, you know, racialist microaggressions that can occur, uh, among the, the campus community, but, but, but having the basic Catholic premise of respect and, you know, Cora personalis in the, in the Jesuit mode, that, that is, that, that puts us in an automatically in a very different space than, than a purely secular university. Um, but deeper than that, I think with dialogue that we all, all of us that have been involved in, in dialogical work for any length of time realize that dialogue requires that you want to learn from the other, not to instruct the other, and that you have to be open to changing your own uh, presuppositions as a result of the conversations that you have. Now, to combine that point with what Adam said, we, we did work in conjunction with uh, several other people, um, particularly with the International Council of Christians and Jews a few years ago, 
um, who were who were reporting what we have seen in the United States too that that congregational level dialogue groups between Christians and Jews that had been in existence for decades literally when it came to the Israeli Palestinian conflict suddenly were at each other's throats and didn't quite know how to it, it was kind of overwhelming the goodwill that had been built and and we worked. Uh, to develop a curriculum with colleagues at other universities as well to um, to bring Jews and Christians together in, you know, typical small group congregational uh, settings to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the way it was done was to ex- to provide folks with short writings from a variety of different political and religious perspectives across the Jewish and Christian um, uh, perspective, including Palestinian and Eastern Orthodox and as much of a variety as we could within a limited space and time. And what people were asked to do, and we learned this from the dialogue through the more theological dialogue, is not to try and immediately criticize whatever they're reading, but try to understand what the arguments were, particularly ones based upon citing biblical or religious texts, why did they choose those texts? Why did those texts and not other texts? What was their reasoning, et cetera, et cetera? And by the end of a six-week process, what uh, pretty much everybody who went through these several different um, renditions of this that we did came saying, I never would have thought of that before had we never done this process. And I find myself having to rethink the positions I came to the conversation with. Um, and particularly, we stress the fact that we're not there to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're not going to do it right in a room in, in Philadelphia or wherever. And um, and so I, I would say that's an example that doesn't, you know, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But to be able to talk about it needs structure, it needs guidance, it needs clear understandings of what the goals of the conversation are. And these are all things we've learned from the more theological or religious or spiritual uh, conversations that we've, we've been um, you know, blessed to be a part of. Just maybe as a, a last question kind of in that spirit of groups coming together i imagine some of our listeners would be will be interested in, in in these topics and wonder how they could get engaged either in their own faith community or in family or friend, friends groups are there resources out there that you recommend uh for for people who are interested in kind of learning more going deeper or starting to explore some of these topics um, so, yeah, we're both watching each other in inhalations to see who's going to go first. So the thing that immediately leaps to me, and Adam mentioned this before, is that there are something like 30 plus centers and institutes like ours uh, in the United States and Canada that have formed a network called the uh, Council of Centers on Jewish Christian Relations. Their website is ccjr.us. There are tons of resources there in terms of of Christian and Jewish documents, statements, uh, um, uh, articles that are referenced, uh, like just plunge in and you'll find lots of stuff. And the members that are listed also each pretty, pretty much have their own websites with their own resources. And in many cities, there are similar 
uh, kinds of endeavors that offer public educational programming. So that would be one thing that immediately leads to my mind as a as a, something that could be pursued. Great, we can link to those in the uh, the show notes. I would just I would note um, there's been over the years over the over the you know few decades now um, a lot of success in bringing diverse communities together, and so we've done some of that ourselves. But um, but Jewish Christian groups largely lay people, but we've also brought together clergy, and this happens in other places as well. Um, and particularly on the Catholic side, I think there's a sense that there's there's um, uh, a kind of quasi obligation to know something about Judaism, um, both theologically, but historically, the, the the American bishops have really emphasized that um, Jews and Christians should talk, that we should know uh, one should know one's neighbors, one should cultivate those relationships, and it's not, you know, as I said earlier, not just that you know one might feel bad about the past, but ideally one becomes a more uh, learned Christian or Jew, one becomes um, more knowledgeable about one's own tradition in the dialogue with someone who has um, a lot to share. And, and so it's not, I mean, it's, it's very much, you know, ideally not motivated by some, you know, sort of heavy historical sense, but, but rather uh, something much more positive. And I, I think that that's certainly um, been a possibility in a, in a lot of communities. And America in this regard is, is, is unique. America's special here because we have large communities of Jews and Christians, Jews and Catholics together, um, it's worth taking advantage of. Um, we that doesn't that doesn't exist in, in nearly any other yeah, part I of the can, world. Yeah, hmm. Mike, you, you asked so earlier much. about yeah. the kinds of programs that we do, and something Adam just said triggered this. That one of the things that we just are, are ready to um, publicize or um, uh, publish about soon is working with two colleagues, uh, Dr. Moti Mbari and Dr. Kirill Booman, um, one from uh, Stonehill College and the other from the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. We conducted a, we had a, a professional surveying uh, company survey over 1,250 American Catholics about their attitudes toward Jews and Judaism and the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the results are very interesting and um, uh, are, ha are both encouraging, but also pose challenges for the for education in the future. Um, so, so that kind of analytical work is also something that's necessary as the new relationship continues to to evolve. Sure. I feel like I would be, you know, um, failing in my Jesuit podcast hosting duties if I didn't ask you about the most famous Jesuit to kind of pay you all a visit uh, in recent years. So just, I think, really highlighting, too, the history of the Institute there at St. Joe's and your work, Pope Francis, when he was in the U.S. Uh, I think it was his one stop at a U.S. university, kind of the one like unannounced stop in Philly. I, I was working near Philly at the time, and we kept hoping that he would come to New Jersey where I was, but he did not. He did, though, visit you at St. Joe's to bless this uh, incredible sculpture that's there and really in the center of your campus, uh, Synagoga and Ecclesia in Our Time is the, is the sculpture by the artist Joshua Kaufman, which kind of shows the study of um, sacred texts together and two figures studying uh, the text. And so again, he was there, he blessed it, this kind of last minute decision. So could you tell us, were you both there for that? Could you tell us a little bit about that experience and to have him visit? 
we were very lucky to have been working with Avi Skorka, Rabbi Skorka, a longtime friend of his from Argentina, co-author. Um, we um, uh, sort of worked behind the scenes, Rabbi Skorka, um, uh, sort of advocating um, that he do something to um, make a sort of Jewish statement, make a, a, a sort of develop a connection with the Jewish community, as previous popes had done. And um, we were both very involved from the start. It was a, um, a, a non-publicized event. And um, we were very lucky that he ended up deciding to include that, which many ways could have gone wrong for a variety of, of reasons. Let me go back a little before um, that, Adam. Uh, and that is he, that that we had been he, working on a, some special way for the university to mark the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate. And... And before anybody knew that Pope Francis was coming to Philadelphia, uh, our institute had um, encouraged the university, which which uh, uh, commissioned the sculpture that you mentioned. We we wanted to make a statement about the change that Nostra Aetate um, engendered, and be, the, the the this is not well known in the United States, but all throughout Europe there are sculptures and depictions of a female representation of church and a female representation of synagogue in which synagogue is always defeated and her staff is broken. She's lost a crown. Uh, she's blindfolded to the truth of the Christian gospel and all of this. And by contrast, Ecclesia synagogue, uh, excuse me, Ecclesia, the church is triumphant and crowned and majestic. So we asked Joshua Kaufman to do a sculpture that would portray them according to post Nostra Aetate Catholic teaching as both in covenant with God. They're both wearing crowns. They are sharing the study of their sacred texts together. They're enjoying the experience. Um, and, and that's a total reversal, right, of, of the medieval image. And, and then when we learned that Pope Francis was coming to the world meeting of the families in Philadelphia in in September of 2015, we had been planning for October of 2015, the anniversary date of Nostra Aetate, we sped things up. And then fortunately, as Adam was saying, uh, brought this to Francis's attention. We were also uh, had an audience with Pope Francis the previous June as part of the International Council of Christians and Jews and invited him to come to St. Joe's since he was staying next door at the seminary. So um, so that's how it all came together. But, but I, I think I think it's important to understand that the that the sculpture has above uh, beneath it on the granite plinth a quote from Pope Francis that says um, there is a rich complementarity between the church and the Jewish people that enables us to help one another understand God's word, uh, which is exactly what the sculpture is depicting, and for him to bless that is blessing the mission of our institute as well as all Catholic Jewish religious encounters. So it's, it's very symbolically significant. We put the quote on there before he came. And when he came after that, we put the date on. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam and Phil, thank you so much for this time and this conversation and so many directions. And again, I still have so many questions, so we'll have to have you back on uh, at some point. You yeah, know where to find really us. I really appreciate all the questions you read. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And again, we'll link to the website and to the places where people can learn more about you and, and the Institute and to find your stuff online. And again, thank you for the work that you're doing and uh, for, for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. 
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.